Hey, good morning, Antioch. Hey, I just want to tell you guys, wasn't worship great? And I want to tell you, they are unsung heroes because there was a lot to fight through this week, and they pulled it off, and it was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, worship team. It's so good to have be together again. We're holding down the fort until all of us can return, and it's happening little by little, so so great to see all of you. So good to be with you again, and if you're new with us or visiting, welcome. We're a Bible-believing, note-taking church, so take out your Bibles or your apps or something to take note with because we always come expectant that God's got a lot to say, cool things to say, and things that we're going to want to remember. So please take out something to take notes with. And then turn with me to the book of Jude, and we're going to go into Genesis as well. Both are pretty easy to find. Jude's all the way to the end and one book left, and Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So we'll be in both of these books today. We're in the last of a five-book series we've been going through in an overview of the grand narrative, the big story of God. And we sought God as a content team and prayed through this, and we felt certain that God had led us to five books in this little adventure of ours. And he led us to Luke, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, 2 Timothy, and then finally the book that we started last week, which is Jude. Jude is the most neglected book of the New Testament. It's unanimous, the most neglected book of the New Testament. It's one of the shortest books that we have in the Bible, but we see it as full of treasures. And so we are spending three weeks in the book of Jude. This is the second week of three-week series that will wrap up our series. The overarching purpose of Jude's letter comes right off pretty close to the beginning in verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary, writing to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude sets out to write a letter about the good news of salvation that's available to all of us. And he looks out over the churches and he sees what's happening. He sees what's being taught. He sees what's creeping in and he's compelled by God. I have to write a different letter, a different letter than I intended. And Jude's charge to the church, he writes this letter and it is meant to be circulated to all the churches. And the charge is this, contend for this great faith that you have been entrusted with. Contend for the faith and contend, strong, strong language, either sport or military. It means with great effort, great urgency, great intent, fight for this faith. The need to contend, to fight, to guard the faith that we've been entrusted with is all through the scriptures. We will find verses in language like this, fight for it, stand for it, Be strong for the faith that you've been entrusted with. Last week, we saw how Jude contended for the faith by guarding the king. And he urged all of us believers to do the same thing. If we are going to contend well for our faith, first and foremost, we must guard the supremacy of our king, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our lives. This week, we will see that Jude also addresses the way that we live, our choices, our behaviors, our actions, and the way we choose to live out our lives on the earth. False teachers had crept into the faith, and they were saying this. They were teaching a complete separation between our bodies and our spirits, a complete separation between our physical beings and the interests of God's, a complete separation between our earthly lives and our heavenly lives. 
This teaching resulted in really bad theology and really immoral behavior and degrading behavior. Bad theology, which just means bad thinking about God, always results, always results in broken behavior and broken lives. Jude takes up the charge against this teaching, and he contends that this is not all. This is not how God sees our lives. Jude fights for the truth of how much our daily lives and the way we live them matter to God. Jude's fight, we get our title from this week, from Jude's fight, we get our title from this week's message, for this week's message, your life through God's eyes. Write that at the top of your page, your life through God's eyes. And we pick up the battle in verse 4 of Jude. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The, that one verse really pretty much defines the entire problem. Jude says that these teachers are encouraging you to make the worst possible trade of your life, to trade the grace of God for a life of licentiousness. Let's break that down a little bit. The grace of God. It's a term that kind of rolls off our lips and kind of becomes common and normal as the more and more time that we are and spend in time with Jesus. And the more we follow Jesus, the more normal this term comes. The grace of God is kind of an umbrella over everything we believe. And so this concept can kind of flow off our lips and lose some of its power and what it has given to us and can feel very common. But the grace of God is anything but common. It is the grace of God Listen to this. It is the grace of God that separates the one true God from every other proclaimed God there is. C.S. Lewis walked into a British conference one time where they were all debating the differences between all the world religions. He walked into a meeting that was already happening where a debate was going on, and they were trying to decide what is it that most separates the Christian faith from all other faiths, and C.S. Lewis said, that's easy. It's grace. That's easy. It's grace. The grace of God is not common, and it is not normal. In fact, the secular world and the Christian world have a completely different understanding and definition of grace. Here are some defining terms for grace from a secular source. It's a type of elegance. It's an allowance for a debt or a bill. It's a short prayer that happens before a meal. That same secular source, same source, acknowledges that grace has a completely different meaning for Christians. And it says this, the freely given unmerited favor and love of God, the influence or spirit of God operating in humans to regenerate, to strengthen them, a virtue or excellence of divine origin. Do you see the power in that? That's from a secular source that says, here's what they believe. The grace of God means living under the favor of God. It acknowledges that God is in, operating in and through us in our lives. And he strengthens us and generates life in us. And he acknowledges a divine excellence as his created beings. When Jude says that they have turned away and denied grace of God in our lives, these 
teachers are actually denying everything that actually makes us who God created us to be. It's a full-on standoff against everything of who we are as created beings by the wonderful God. He says, they're denying everything. There's nothing special about you. There's no power in what you do, and there's no purpose to live out. And those teachers go on. And since that's true about you, here's the other theology follows. Since that is true about you, therefore, it does not matter how you live your life out here on earth. It doesn't make a difference. There are no boundaries. You can live physically however you want, and God doesn't care. This is what Jude is saying when he says they turned the grace of God and traded it for licentiousness. Licentiousness is a big word, but in the, it basically means lacking any legal or moral restraints, restraints, especially disregarding sexual restraints. These teachers were advocating trading the grace of God for a life that had no boundaries according to them. And according to them, that's the only thing that would make sense. And it actually does make sense. If there is no grace of God, then you should just live however you want to live. And that's what they're advocating. The ultimate living out. If it feels good, if it benefits you, no matter what it costs you, no matter what it costs anybody else, no matter how it impacts anybody else, you just do it. And, and according to these teachers, when you live like that, God does not care. He will not judge and he will not punish. So just do it. You can almost feel Jude's head exploding as he hears this teaching in the church. I mean, really, you can hear him. He's like, I have to write a letter in response to this. And he does, and he does it masterfully. Right from the beginning, in verse 1, notice how he addresses them. Very lovingly, very kind. He says, Jude 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Do you see Jude's elegant but masterful rebuttal right from the start? No favor in God in this life? <laughs> You're called by God. No real purpose and no strength from God? You're beloved by God. No divine excellence? You're kept by Jesus. And that term actually could mean kept by Jesus or kept for Jesus. I think it's both. Kept by and for Jesus. How is that for a gentle, resounding rebuke to say, what you're hearing is junk. It's just junk. What they're selling, that's lies. That's just lies. And to their recommendations to live a life where, that you're living, a life by no rules, no boundaries, no restraints, Jude has some very pointed things to say about these people that are advocating this. In verse 12, he said, These are men who are hidden reeves in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Jude gives six very strong metaphors about these teachers and the lives they're living. He says they're hidden reeves. Oh, you can't see it because it's just below the surface, but you're going to know it when you hit it. 
They are shepherds who shepherd themselves. They do not care about anyone else except what is going on in their own lives. They are clouds without rain. What that means is everything that are raining down on you, everything that are bringing you, they can't deliver. It will never happen. It is not true. And then he goes on to say they're twice dead trees, dangerous waves, wandering stars, pitch dark nights. I don't think he could say it any long, stronger than he's saying it. These guys and what they're teaching will lead to disaster and destruction. And, and when they tell you that God won't act and God doesn't care and he won't move, Jude responds, woe to them. Woe to them. Jude borrows a phrase that almost Jesus almost exclusively uses alone. And he uses it, Jesus uses it, when he's issuing some of his strongest rebukes and harshest truths to the Pharisees. His most offensive statements to human beings probably started with, woe to you. Woe to you, hypocrites and blind guides, you whitewashed tomb. God's judgment is coming. And he ends with this. Jesus says, upon you shall fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. Woe is Bible speak for that military term, incoming. That's what you got to see. When you see woe, it's incoming. And then their claims that their lives can be lived without judgment or consequences from God. Then Jude does this masterfully. He kind of goes and he says, well, you might want to check with Korah and his gang. He uses Bible examples. Oh, no judgment, no consequences. Why don't you check with Korah and his gang? And then start, oh. Sorry, you can't. They got swallowed up by the earth. Oh, why don't you check with Balaam? Because Balaam opposed God. And, oh, you can't check with him because God had him executed. Why don't you check with Sodom and Gomorrah about this no judgment, no consequences stuff? Oh, that's right, you can't. God wiped them off the face of the earth for their sexual rebellion and their denial of the poor. The sarcasm, by the way, is all mine. <laughs> Jude was way more kind and masterful. <laughs> Jude is saying, God doesn't care. God won't act. Look at history. Jude, in the strongest terms, is saying, this junk that they are telling you and teaching you, whatever that is, whatever they're enticing you into, that you're nothing special, that you have no divine influence over your life, that you have no real purpose, that life has no boundaries and no guidelines and no consequences, and that no matter how you live, God won't care, he won't act. I don't know what that is, but I can tell you this, that is not God. That's the purpose of Jude. I don't know what this is, but I can tell you this, it's not God. That is not the God of Jude's time. It's not the God of our time. In fact, it's not the God of any time. These claims by these teachers, they were not new. They were as old as creation. These lies that you're not called by God. You're not beloved by God. You're not kept by and for Jesus. Some form of these lives have, lies have been a weapon of the enemy since the beginning of the time. Let's take a quick stroll in the garden. Turn back to Genesis with me. Honey, can I have my water? Thanks. If you get to it in Genesis, in verse 126. Thank you. No, not there. Thanks. Could you take it? Thanks. 
something God said. The idea that we are not of great purpose and that your life does not have great meaning or does not have great impact on the earth is addressed right out the way. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God, from the beginning, says you have the greatest worth. We're made in his image. The greatest purpose, to be his image bearers throughout the earth. And we do have a great calling on our lives and great authority to carry out that calling. God, do I have a great calling on my life? Do I have a great? God's answer. I created you in my image. I created you in accordance to live out that image and to bear who I am throughout the world. And then I gave you the authority to rule over my creation and to bring the rule and the reign of God to the earth. How's that for a call and for a purpose? That is your life through God's eyes. <laughs> that is your life through God's eyes. Listen carefully to this. It is because of your calling, it's because of your purpose, and because of your power. It's because of the truth of these three things that the enemy will never, never stop coming after you and try and take this from you. Now, Satan cannot change this truth Hear me, he cannot change it, but he will never stop trying to get you to forget it or give it away. Never. And he will use some form of the same three challenges that he always has used. They were challenges in Jude's day and they're challenges in our day and the challenges will always be just as they were the challenges of, of Satan in the garden. One of first three forms. The first one comes from Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field in which Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said? Has God said you shall not eat from the garden? First, evil will try to steal the God's question. Has God really said? Has God really said anything? And if he has said anything, did he really say this? The question has swirled since the beginning of time, and it's at a fever pitch today. Has God really said? In the life that you and I walk in, we are now in the minority of the people that God has said anything at all. I'm not saying the minority of believing that God exists. Most people still believe that. But the belief that God has spoken, speaks into, and over our lives, we are in the minority. We are in the super minority of the people, people that believe that God said this. That's just a reality. The Bible is in fact that even, or the fact of, is that even among Christians, it is the minority that believe in the authority and the complete authority of the Bible. In the last survey from Barnum, even 65% of proclaimed Christians admitted that culture, family, and experience impacts their decisions more than they weigh the scriptures. That's the world we live in today. Has God said, and has he said this? 
I want to humbly submit that we as Christians have to solidly answer that questions in our own lives before we have any hope of answering it for the world in general. There is a process that the Bible calls renewing our minds. What truth are we to renew our minds to? This truth. God is good, acceptable, and perfect always. You mean as Christians, we have to renew our minds to that? Yes, we do. Do you mean at conversion that wasn't totally done? No. The process started at conversion. But it is a renewal of our minds as a continual process as we journey with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an entire message in itself, but in short, we change the change by our will, by our strength, change that can last and sustain. It's just not possible before we know Jesus. Anything that we change, it will be taken away. It will last for a short time. It will disintegrate. It's just not possible without Jesus. But when Jesus died, he died to give us a gift. And that is the Holy Spirit of God living in us. It is in the Holy Spirit that God gives us the possibility of this life-changing, life-lasting, deeper faith, love, hope, perseverance. It is by the power of the Spirit that we have the chance for new life. That simply is not possible apart from the Spirit of God. However, we must learn to walk with the Spirit of God to walk in the spirit of God, to hear the voice of God so God can confirm his word in our hearts and in our minds as he will whisper to us through his spirit, this is the way you should go, walk in it. And as we walk in it, he confirms it is truly good, acceptable, and perfect. This journey with God inevitably, inevitably, listen to me, will lead you times, two times, where his word is going to ask you to do something, to sacrifice something, to give something, to change something that your flesh and your natural self does not want to do. And you will have a choice at that time to say yes to the Spirit or no to the Spirit. That's why the Bible talks about we can, as believers, quench the Spirit. I hear you, God, but I'm saying no. We can grieve the Spirit. I hear you, God, but I don't want to let go of this. And then, if we'll say yes, if we'll say yes in that thing that feels so foreign to us naturally and in the flesh, but God says to do, when we move into it, we will feel and experience God in a brand new way. And we will be, you are good, acceptable, and perfect. What else do you know about me? What else do you want to encourage me in? And it is when our faith is built and more and more we'll be able to walk in the spirit of God and live out the testimony to the world. Yes, God has spoken. And yes, he said this. And my life proves it. The undermining and devaluing of the authority of God's words is important for us to realize because it means how we lived our lives is more important than ever before. Up until relatively short time ago, if we pointed to the Bible that at least had enough reverence and respect 
that people would at least take it into account in their decision-making process. I'm sorry, but I believe that time has passed. For the most part, this does not come into the world's decision-making process and is not valued in that process. Very few will consider its contents, its wisdom, or its power in, in decision-making. Now, we can get really upset about this, and we can be, feel picked on, and we can talk about all the things that people are against us, or we can see the incredible opportunity that's in front of us because the world needs this, and we'll live it out in front of them. They're going to get all pumped up about it. They just need to see it. We have to realize that we're living in a world that our words, they're becoming less and less important. People got to see it. I shared the gospel with a guy who played squash with him for a long time, a young guy from Australia. And I might have shared this story before, but he was really smart, knew all the world's religions. And for six months, it just, it wasn't very interesting to him. He just had all these questions. One time he calls me and he says, Steve, I'm ready to listen. I said, okay, let's meet and have lunch. No, I want to do it on the squash court. I'm like, well, I don't know how that's going to work. But so we go, we're putting on our shoes. The questions start. Two hours later, we're sitting on the carpet share the gospel with him, share the Bible with him. Here was his response to me. Then you mean to tell me, now, now hear this, no judgment. This was not sarcastic. This was an observation. <gasps> so then you mean to tell me that 80% of the people that say they're Christians aren't really Christians. And I said, Mike, I never said that. He goes, no, no, I know. But if what you just told me is true, it will change my whole life. And they're no different than I am. Ouch. They want to see it. By the way, Mike's just on fire for Jesus in Australia right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's giving me a run for my money. Now, some of us, some of us are going to is issue this. I want to say a caveat because there's some people in the room like Linda and Bill Frege that's listening and they just don't get to go through a day before they get to share their faith. It just happens. It just rolls out of them. And they're sitting there going, oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that we can't use our words. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to say to you that if you're looking to do that, if you look at this as an excuse to say, oh, well, then I don't have to say anything. I'll just live it out. Uh-uh. Stop it. You don't know what's going on around you. You don't know what's going on before you. We got to venture in to try and share. I call it sending out scouts. We got to send out scouts, see if the Holy Spirit's working and go as far as we can. Okay? So it's not an excuse to not stop it. In fact, I've got something written on my Bible. When God wants me to speak or when I want to speak, God probably wants me to shut up. When I want to be quiet, God's probably saying, we speak up. So that's a pretty safe rule. I just share that for what it's worth. When God sees your life, he sees someone he has created, called, empowered to live and give a testimony to the world. There is a right way and a wrong way to live for ourselves, for the others, for the world. And God has said it. And he's told us what it is. The second attempt to steal you from God and how God sees your life is going to come in some way, short or form in this. From Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. Now listen to this. This lie implies two things. It implies, one, there is no judgment directly from God, and two, that there are no consequences to immoral or bad behavior. There's no consequences to our behavior. Those two assumptions are in this. There is no judgment from God. The message of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, God will act. 
It's just undeniable. Critical to us in our faith walk is the question, why? Why will he act? Why can we be certain that God is going to act and why does he act? Why can we be certain that if we rebel against him, if we leave him, if we forget to live our fully human lives as image bearers of God, he will act. God must act because he has a people to raise up, to make himself known to the world and to bring his kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and mercy and love and healing. And he is not going to allow that to be stopped. In Isaiah 9-7, it says this, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God invites us to come with him into his kingdom. He invites us to be a part of sharing that kingdom, a part of living in that kingdom, a part of enjoying that kingdom. Even Paul said, I'm walking in the gospel so that I can partake in the gospel. God invites us into all of that, but God will not stop bringing that kingdom, even for someone he loves. Even for someone he loves. If we rebel, if we leave, he will act. First, to invite us back in, gently. And we saw in Jeremiah, patiently. But in the end, he will act. First to reconcile, but he will zealously protect the kingdom that is on the move. The second implication of the lie, surely you will not die, is the lie that there is no consequences in our life for our choices. This lie implies, and we often believe, listen carefully, this lie implies that we often believe that God is keeping some of the good stuff from us. Now think about that, okay? Think about that. Because if there are not really any consequences to sin or our actions, if there is no harm done and just joy and peace and fun come out of it, and God says no, then he's just keeping some of the good stuff from us. See, sometimes we slip into this thing that God, God just doesn't want us to go after that stuff because, because he's God and because he gets to tell us. And that mindset, it's not safe to stay there. It's not safe to stay there. We have to keep renewing our minds in the power of the spirit and truth. There is no good stuff apart from God. There's no good stuff God keeps us from. I fear sometimes we look at the gospel and see part of the good news as a part of the amazing father heart. We miss it. I know that we tend to focus on Matthew 16, 24 and the truth of this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is true. It is right. And it is just. And the math works. God could have absolutely said, here's all I did for you. And for that in return, I'm going to ask you to deny this, this, and this. The math works. But it's not consistent with the Father heart of God. We see the Father heart of God pour over that and into that verse in verse 25. When he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. There's the Father heart of God. I'm not keeping good stuff from you. I want you to have life and only life. I believe that's God confirming this. Everything that you leave me for, everything that will pull you away, everything that tempts you will eventually destroy you, bring destruction and kill you. 
Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 21. You must not turn aside, for then you will go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. Isaiah says, in the presence of God, there's rivers of flowing water and righteousness. And Peter says, the things that pull you away, they actually war against your very soul. This is the heart of God. I'm trying to protect you for life. The father heart of God is all through the Bible. Everything I command you is for good. The lie, you shall surely not die. God will not act. There's no consequences for how you choose your life. The truth, God will always act. Not because he lords over his people, but because your life is a part of a greater, grander story about a kingdom that we are invited into. And nothing will stop the kingdom. He can't let the, st the kingdom stop from coming. There will be no consequences. There will be consequences, not because God loves to lord over it, because he loves you too much not to act. So you can be certain God will act. The third way the enemy will try to take your true identity from you is Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan, evil forever, will say this lie to you. You can be your own God and you should be your own God. Two lies. Not just one lie. They're both lies. You can't possibly be your own God. God is not a better one of us. God is not a fully enlightened human being. God is not even a perfect human being. God is wholly other than we can ever be. We are not to attain to be God, just to revel in the glory of God through the grace of God. What about the lie that you want to be your own God? <laughs> no, you, you really don't. You really don't. If we could and we can't, you really don't want. I submit to you that that would be the worst thing possible is for you to be allowed to make all your own decisions and all your own directions when and where you need to make them. I submit this. I close with this story and an illustration from my own life. We as a family were going through a really hard time, multiple difficulties, challenges, and heartaches. The details don't really matter because every one of us has had periods of life that reflect the kind of struggle I'm talking about. I'm talking about where pain and sorrow and sadness seem to be a constant companion. These sometimes in our lives, they last for days. Sometimes they last for weeks. In our case, it lasted for years, and I couldn't stand up under it anymore. There were times I just simply didn't think I could take it anymore. I needed relief. I needed God to change this, and so I cried out to God. And I had this beautiful picture. It's recorded in my journal. If you ever want me to show you, it was a beautiful day. God very gently and lovingly gave me, very gently, very lovingly, said Steve, and it was a picture of him handing me a scalpel. And he turned it over to me and he said, Steve, here, you can cut anything out of your life that you want to. And I pictured my life and it was this wonderful, live, living heart with blood vessels all through it, running off of that heart. And in that heart picture were some dark spots, 
Those were the pain and the suffering. But in every dark spot, five, ten blood vessels of life ran off of those dark spots. There wasn't one dark spot where life didn't come from those dark spots. And I looked at it and I realized I don't know where to cut. Anything I cut actually cuts out the very life that I now love and treasure. And I handed the scalpel back to God and said, please don't make me cut. I need you to be my God. You're good. I'm not. You know I don't. The lie that you can be your own God, no, you can't. The lie that you want to be, no, you don't. Some thieves had snuck into the church in Jude's time and they carried some of the lies. They carried the same lies that thieves always carry. You're not special. You have no great purpose. There's no divine intervention over your life and God will not act. And so live your life any way you want to. And Jude answers, I don't know what that is, but it's not God. Jude confirms the truth that existed from creation. You are a work of divine excellence. You are an image bearer of God. God has spoken and given you guidelines and boundaries for life. If you live outside of the boundaries, it will act. You will lose a wonderful part of your grand purpose in a grand kingdom. These boundaries are not life-stealing. They're life-giving and life-protecting. How you choose your life that you've been given here on earth, it's of great importance to God, to the people around you, to the kingdom that's on the move. That's your life through God's eyes. Let's stand. We like to be a church that has the chance to respond. It was a great question that happened in the beginning. Anybody wanna raise their hand and say they got this all together and have all the answers going? Okay, good. I don't either. This is a prayer time just to submit things to God. That's all. Nothing magic about it. We're not going to get counseling. We're not going to give counseling. This is about a time to make our requests and our needs known to God. If there's something that needs to be repented of, come forward. Some of our prayer ministry is going to be in front. Come forward. If there's something that you need to celebrate, come forward. If there's something you need God's voice to hear God's voice, come forward. It's just that simple. Respond to God while you can. This is a safe place. Let's come to God if we need to.